Well, good afternoon uh, to those of you in London and Europe, and uh, may I say good morning uh, to those of you in New York. Uh, we're absolutely delighted to have with us today Professor Melissa Fisher, a cultural anthropologist and visiting scholar at New York University Institute for Public Knowledge. And Melissa has written copiously on many subjects and is no newcomer to the idea of what is the new workplace going to look like. And she's going to be talking to us today about navigating the new physical and digital workplace in the age of pandemics. Now, you'll know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Xi'an, and it really is my privilege to be able to introduce so many of these webinars. Uh, it's been one of the great outcomes of the pandemic is that we've been able to reach widely and freely across the world, uh, having uh, Melissa dialing in uh, today from New York. Uh, I can only do so, however, we can do so, thanks to the generosity and, may I say, tolerance of our sponsors in the FS Club who do allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And today's topic, the future of the workplace, surely combines all of those subject areas. And I think we're all fascinated, interested, and eager to hear ideas on what the workplace might look like. But at the same time, I think clearly skeptical at some of the, we'll never go to the office again, or it'll all go back to normal. People could never work from home really in the long term. Uh, and Melissa's done not, not just a lot of thinking on this, but also a lot of research, which she's going to share with us today. Now, the agenda, as ever, is my job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible so you can hear from our expert. Uh, and I think like these three points of housekeeping. One, people always ask, are the slides going to be shown? Uh, yes, the slides are available. And in fact, they're already available um, on the website. Uh, secondly, the recording. Yes, this is being recorded unless it all goes to hell in a handbasket. Uh, but we, we, we will have the recording up in approximately two working days. And as it is a bank holiday here in the UK uh, this weekend, that probably means sometime late Tuesday. Uh, but it will be up and you can share with friends and colleagues. But the most important point to make is that I'll be feeding in, in, in at 25 past three or uh, 25 past the hour in New York. I will be feeding in comments, questions, and observations that you, the audience, make into a discussion here with Melissa. And could I please encourage you to use the GoToWebinar questionnaire facility. Uh, you can signal me, you can WhatsApp me, you can email me, you can do all sorts of things. But I'm here with you right now and I want to get all those afterwards. So to feed them in, uh, please place them. All of your comments and questions will be sent to Melissa um, and it'll have your email attached to it. So if you want to get hold of her about something or ask a detailed question, please feel free to do so. <laughs> really, with no more ado, may I say, Melissa, the floor is very much yours. Um, well, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me to talk about navigating the sort of what I call the brave new world of work. And I'm just going to start right in. Um, we've had a complete disruption and upheaval and flux due to the pandemic. And I guess the question for lots of us, whether we're in business or we're working at home or we're anthropologists is, next slide, how can we make sense of and really support the new world of work? And I want to tell you today that I think anthropologists can help make sense and perhaps even revolutionize our understanding of the workplace and workplace behavior, how people understand their workplace experience by studying workers, organizations, and markets through an anthropological lens. So I'm going to take you through a tiny 101 cultural anthropology background, and then I'm going to venture forth into my current research, which I've been doing on the future of work uh, for the past four years. Next slide. So what is cultural anthropology, you may ask? Well, anthropology has historically been the study of people and culture. Of course, we used to study the Trobrian Islands and Indians, 
But now, in fact, we go to so-called, um, for lack of a, not, not to a word, exotic cultures like Wall Street. And what is culture? Well, culture is a shared system of meaning, symbols, rituals, and practices of an organization or a society. An anthropological approach can really help businesses understand the organizational and cultural shifts that are demanded in what has become, as Michael alluded to, a really expanded ecosystem, right? A kind of hybrid world of work in which we might be working at home, in the office, um, and third spaces. Next slide. So again, a little bit fast uh, for you. What does anthropologists do? Anthropologists have historically gone to hang out with people. It's called field work, but the truth of the matter is we hang out with people. Don't let anybody fool you. Um, so we do field work. We, and why do we do field work? We want to understand if we go to somebody's workplace or we want to understand how somebody's working at the dining room table, we really want to understand how do they experience that workplace? What are the constraints that they're facing? If they're getting really sick and tired of being at the dining room table and they're going to go to a third space and they're dying to collaborate, how do they get there? It's really looking at the everyday practices. Next slide. So anthropologists were about, as I was telling Michael actually earlier, have done um, looking at corporations and Wall Street for about the last three decades. So I just wanted to tell you a little bit about what we've done and how uh, the kind of work that I've done might feed into understanding the future of work. Um, my first book, which was called Frontiers of Capital, really wanted to understand what we call the new economy. You may remember the dot-com era, right? And sort of this enchantment with um, high technology. And so we gathered a bunch of anthropologists um, to look at how futures traders, Chinese entrepreneurs, bankers, and others, how were their cultural practices and their relationships at work being radically altered by economic and of course, technological change, the internet. So for example, one anthropologist, Kate Saloum, apprenticed herself to traders working in the Chicago Board of Trade. And she actually used ethnographic and anthropological tools. This is interesting to look at the move in the 90s from what was traditional open cry style trading in the pits where people moved their hands and waved at each other to digital trading on the screen. And the interesting thing was that this was not a seamless process. It was hard for designers to invent the same process of interacting on the trading floor with bodies and movement and talking on the screen. And I point this out as an interesting study because of course, of course now in the future of work, we're trying to think about how can we create you know, a digital environment that somehow replicates. And it's obviously not going to be an easy process. Anthropologists need to work with designers. My own book, which I'll just touch upon, was on the first generation of women on Wall Street. I tracked their careers and their networks and their practices from the 1950s up until the financial crisis. And so that has made me very interested in thinking about issues concerning inclusion and diversity and equity um, in the workplace for some time. Next slide. Not but buttering you up, but um, I do have a copy of uh, Wall Street oh, Women, yes. and I've been reading it. <laughs> I'm not finished yet but I can categorically say it's a really good read, people. Sorry, Melissa. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's, and I should just tell people that it's really about, um, it's really about um, women on Wall Street. It's their stories. It's not like highly theoretical. It's about their history and their joys. So let me tell you also about what anthropologists do when it comes to business. So part of my career has been 
you know, being an anthropologist who studies Wall Street and writes books, but I've also brought in to help businesses. And so I thought I would give you a sense of what anthropologists do when they collaborate with others. So about 10 years ago, um, one of the major hotels was going to ask to, felt that they were lagging behind in their culture. And they really wanted to feel that they could be more inclusive. They felt that their rooms were built more for men versus women. They felt that they were more analog and needed to be more digital. And so I joined across a team of experts, and that's me in the left at an ideation session, um, in which we really wanted to work together to develop a deeper understanding of the female travelers, business travelers' behaviors and attitudes. And then in turn, um, to create, and then you see on the other side, you know, products and services that would then meet the needs of female business travelers. So anthropologists can be very academic, and anthropologists can also be quite, um, quite um, uh, applied. Next slide. But let's get to the heart of the matter, um, the future of work, which we're here to talk to today. And I just give you those as a background as to how they, the work that I did on Wall Street in the hotel really has informed and shaped the way that I look at the future of work today in what is now my third book. So the global pandemic has really ushered in a revolution, I think, of the ways and places we work. Um, for the first time in modern history, work and family life for many people are taking place primarily in the home, at least for office workers. And as Michael alluded to, despite the sort of idea that the, the office is going to be obsolete, it turns out that in fact, people are clamoring to come, come back to the office to socialize. Next slide. Oh, and I should just mention that that's a new, um, and what's really interesting in New York City is we have these new clusters of books and coffee, books and drinks. Um, that's the slide that's nearest to your left. Um, it's a sudden plethora of kind of these third spaces that have been invented. So it's, it's really interesting. And I, I consider this part of my field work. Next slide. Um, as businesses move into new ways of working, no, the slide behind, right? Um, I think it's important as an anthropologist, I said, we, we focus on people to really take a human-centric approach to really focus on how people understand their new experience and to also take one that's inclusive when we think about redesigning. Um, what is true about the pandemic is it's been felt everywhere, but we can see this increasingly globally, unfortunately, that the direct impact on black and brown communities and countries, India, is staggering. Um, so I think the pandemic has really further exposed systemic racism, making business leaders and their employees increasingly sensitive to racial and other forms of inequality in the workplace. So I think as we are workers and businesses and leaders, we really need to think that when we redesign the workplace experience, we need to recognize that changes at work, at home, co-working places or the front lines can really impact individuals in very different ways. And that depends on their race, their ethnicity, gender, class, health and family life. So in the remaining time, I wanna talk about, I mentioned an anthropologist look at cultural change, right? And sort of how does cultural shape people's experience? I wrote a report with a colleague of mine at the conference board where I'm a distinguished principal research fellow. Uh, a couple months ago, it came out and it's available. And we really looked at what we call three cultural shifts in the place, the structure, and the meaning of work. And how these shifts really impact people on the ground, people in working. And then we came up with a set of ideas or strategies in which we recommend that businesses and individuals perhaps consider when they think about the implications of these three 
shifts. So let's look at the first shift, uh, which uh, the first shift next slide. The first shift I identified is really not surprising when work becomes home and home becomes work. You know, the pandemic upended not only where work is done, but how we actually think about home and work, including workplace policies. It's remote work is not new. That's the interesting thing. And social scientists have been studying this for a really long time. Arlie Hochschild looked at remote work um, in corporations here in the US about 20 years ago. And she found that, you know, family came, that, that in spite of the fact that people would talk about family was first before work, they never took advantage of any of the policies because they were so concerned about being seen, right? Yeah. Now we've had this massive experiment where we actually have all had to come, most of people who have kind of office or knowledge work, right, and stay home. And in a remarkable reversal, it's been very interesting to track. The first couple of months, I think we were all able to sort of go on adrenaline and kind of work. Um, and, and the first studies actually show that people were relatively happy, relatively happy and productive. But you know, a year into the pandemic, we really see that the shift to remote work may not be, at least on a full-time basis, maybe problematic. We find people suffering from loneliness, you know, a sense of isolation. You know, mothers and caregivers, if they're their parents, um, childcare or elder care, are having real anxieties. They don't have suitable space. Problems with the internet. You know, and I think a discussion of all the debates about the implications of uh, of COVID on the workplace and inequalities is is obviously too broad for our talk today. But I do think that we can next slide really think about the ways in which um, organizations can help people to think about, you know, um, and help their workers to have a supportive environment when it is at home. One is of course, thinking about how do you provide um, an ergonomic home office um, and the questions about whether or not um, organizations now have an obligation or should help their employees to figure out how to create a comfortable kind of space. Another issue is addressing the needs of a diverse workforce. You know, how do you think about giving flexibility to working parents, for example, to support all employees who are juggling both work and caregiving responsibilities? So there are a number of different kinds of ways in which we can think about um, how you would want to um, create a more um, seamless way of both working at home and then moving apart. Let me go to the next cultural shift and the next slide. So the second cultural shift that my colleague and I identified was this notion of going from personal wellness to social wellness and a safe workplace. Now, for some time, corporations have been witnessing a mindful revolution, right? We have all the kind of high-end amenities, um, the gym, the yoga class, the napping pods. Um, and you know the effects of the mainstream of wellness into the workplace has been debatable, but it's basically focused on the individual, right? The individual getting their yoga in or their healthy food. I think today in the wake of COVID-19, we're seeing what I would call a second mindfulness revolution. And I think it's well underway. One that focuses far more on the positive systemic effects of engaging everyone in safe, mindful, and sustainable work practices. And this is not so easily uh, created, right? I mean, in the context of I live in New York City, how did we get people to feel comfortable initially with, for example, wearing masks? 
Um, if you remember, people were not so, and I, and I don't know how it is um, in London or where, where everyone is right now. Um, navigating uh, social distance spaces, if you remember how um, perhaps fraught it was, for example, to go into a supermarket, right? So, um, and, and how you had to sort of learn and become habituated to the importance of creating kinds of space. So I think we're beginning to see businesses shifting from a primary focus from what I'm calling personal individualistic oriented wellness to social and even what we would call global wellness. And of course, I think that's a good thing. Um, the idea of social wellness is of course not entirely new. It involves building healthy and nurturing and supportive relationships and fostering a genuine connection with others. So how does it translate into the workplace? It can mean many things. Um, Thinking about how the interior physical environment when people return to work into the office um, can be, create a, a catalyst for social connection and well-being, right? Because as people come back into the office, they wanna feel safe, they wanna feel secure. Um, companies need to be thinking about how to readjust and redesign the workplace uh, to ensure workers' physical and emotional sense of safety, which I think will be one of the kind of huge hurdles, right? Because one of the things that anthropologists look at is not just, you know, the technical things that have to happen about the workplace, but how are people feeling psychologically, culturally? What are the anxieties that they may bring to stepping into an office on a part-time or full-time basis? So there are lots of different cultural shifts we could consider using, and I'm just going to sort of lay them out here. One of the ones that you know I really take from the hospitality idea is that one that's the second one on your um, on the on the slide is you know having a mobility ambassador, right? I mean, just like you have a concierge, right, who welcomes people to a hotel and tells them where things are. Companies are of course thinking about how can we create people who can help people to adjust, right, to the new cultural, the spatial dimensions. Um, and of course, a cultural or concierge can be a connector, right? A way of helping people to connect people. So I'm gonna move on to the last cultural shift before drawing to a close. Next slide. So the last one is really thinking about building an inclusive corporate culture or work culture everywhere, right? Um, you know, traditionally companies have built strong corporate cultures in the physical office, right? We've thought about how uh, the office provides a physical enclosure or boundaries for office behavior and spaces where values, beliefs, and ideas shape and define employees' experience. And I think we understand that. You know, offices have also historically provided a physical environment for people to connect with one another by working together, attending meetings, brainstorming, eating lunch, you know, having a casual coffee. And it's important because these are the occasions that have helped employees to work efficiently and productively, but also to spontaneously build key relationships with formal and informal colleagues and mentors who can then facilitate career advancement and provide information. And of course, this is the key kind of uh, loss that people uh, report, right, is the spontaneous kinds of interactions. Um, and it, this is, this is a, a deep concern to me as somebody who has, looked at um, the history of women, for example, on Wall Street, who found their mentors, who found colleagues that they could work with and allies in the context of the workplace, or in the context of what we would call networking, right? Going out for drinks um, after um, work. So the key question is, is uh, 
what is happening. And, and, and I think I want to sort of stop here for a second and suggest that we, we have something alarming potentially happening. And, you know, anthropologists and sociologists look at what we call strong ties and weak ties. Strong ties are the people that you see all the time that you have deep connection with. And weak ties are people that you have less of a connection with or a peripheral. It's important to have both in your life. The weak ties tend to be more diverse and can lead to all kinds of, uh, one person uh, works in a firm who knows another person. So weak ties turn out to be really important because they're more diverse. Our, 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 our strong ties tend to be just family and the people that we see. Weak ties are more diverse. And in the context of the pandemic, what we have found is that people are focusing more on their strong ties, their family, and their very close ties and have loosened those weak ties, right? And so we're actually in social networks and social environments and work environments in which we are more homogeneous and mo more monolithic. And that's of deep concern to me because it means that we are not having the kind of diversity that is important for an equitable, inclusive environment and society. It's also problematic because we don't know if in the context of these diverse interactions, these spontaneous interactions, that's where innovation comes often, right? That's where creativity comes from. So I wanna sort of push this idea because I think as we think about how we return to the workplace, it's going to be important about thinking about how to create physical and digital environments in which people's weak and strong ties can both be um, enhanced. The other thing is that anthropologists uh, look uh, very often at the importance of rituals, right? I mean, the importance of rituals turn out to be at the workplace, whether it's getting together for, you know, the Friday night drink. These are all the kinds of things that have been sort of pushed away or fallen to the wayside. And the question is, is um, have people invented new kinds of rituals that provide a way, a system of a way that they can feel that they belong, right? Um, these are all sort of critical things to consider. We can try and invent rituals, but very often it's nice to allow people to sort of create their own ways of uh, linking to each other. So you can see that by bringing in the ideas of sociology and anthropology, the idea of weak ties, strong ties, culture, rituals, we can kind of provide an analytic lens into understanding. So here's my last kind of suggestion, and, and then we can open it up to Q&A. Um, it's going to be critical, and obviously companies are already thinking about how do you create these intentional touch points where you can foster spontaneous interactions, digitally and materially, the kind that happened before. And perhaps, you know, I mean, the, the more positive side of me thinks after sounding the alarm about the, uh, are staying with people more and more like ourselves. Perhaps we can think about together, you know, creating um, new opportunities, digitally and material, in which we can really foster um, diversity. And, and we kind of see that happening today, right? In the context of Zoom, right? Because I'm talking to Michael, I ended up meeting him in a board meeting where we would have never possibly met. So there are possibilities that are opening up and I just wanna suggest that we need to really pay attention to sort of what are the digital, the opportunities that we have created also and to sort of look at that inventiveness. Um, I mentioned developing new workplace rituals. We may wanna relaunch training to build a diverse, equitable and inclusive culture. And then I wanna finally suggest that you know, um, given what I started off talking about, that this has been a revolution in the way we work, but we've also seen the impact on frontline workers, factory workers. Um, I'm watching India with 
total dismay. Um, how do we really think about how to seriously create workplace experiences wherever that is, whether it's in industry, on the factory floor, in the office, right? Think about it, and, and, and Michael and I were talking about systems thinking. Anthropologists look at systems too. And if we look at it systemically and understand that we're all kind of related together, how can we work to really create um, workplaces that instill values of anti-racism, gender equity, um, and social justice? And so um, my hope is that anthropologists working with uh, diversity experts, people in tech, people like Michael, people who are on the call, presumably, um, who are interested in it, either personally, organizationally, or professionally. I, I sort of call it as a call to arms, if you will, to allow this moment in the brave new world of work to create um, more equitable, diverse, and inclusive work environments. So I thank you, and I'm going to open it up to Q&A, and I'm excited to hear what people are thinking and wondering. Oh, we have the poll, yes. Okay. So folks, uh, please do uh, type your questions, comments, or observations in uh, so that I can feed them in. I've got a few here already, but uh, get them in early because we've only got uh, 20 minutes. But just before, Melissa would like to ask you a question. So I'm going to launch this poll here, uh, which basically goes, uh, which of the three uh, future of work cultural shifts that Melissa mentioned do you think is the most important? One, when work becomes home and home becomes work. Two, the move from personal wellness to social wellness in a safe workplace. Or three, building an inclusive culture everywhere. So, this would be the first to say it's a bit of an artificial choice. Yeah, it um, is. We'll see. Ever, our audience has answered very rapidly. Uh, well over half have voted. I'll give it to just a few more seconds to get some of that inclusive participation up there. Uh, coming on now, uh, most of the audience has voted. And I'm now just about to close that poll and share the results. And wow, uh, overwhelmingly, 70% effectively, for number three, building an inclusive culture everywhere. So uh, that's great. Pretty telling. I guess, in, in, in a sense, one could argue that uh, building an inclusive um, culture could encompass home and work and social wellness. So I'm all for that. Um, I did want to mention that, you know, um, I've loved giving these webinars over the last year to various groups and people are, are more than welcome, of course, um, to contact me either through, I think you have my LinkedIn, but also through my email. And I mentioned to Michael um, that I have just joined forces with a partner who is a futurist. And we've now created our own consulting company that brings anthropological ethnographic expertise and that of future studies to look at the future of work. Um, and I've been talking to various clients about working with them. So I'm happy to entertain, you know, discussions um, if you would like. So I'm going to then hand it back to Michael and hear what well, people have to ask. Well, Melissa, you, you covered a heck of a lot of ground. Um, and I was just right. gonna, there's several points of contact. Uh, I remember mm -hmm. about four or five years ago being in Chengdu and going into a 24 hour bookstore, very swishy, but we had people sleeping in the bookstore, people eating in the bookstore, wow. people studying in the bookstore, people canoodling mm -hmm. in the bookstore. All of life was occurring in That's this. That's great. Bookstore. You're an ethnographer. Yeah. Tolerated. It was a. It was there, and we're already seeing, I think, uh, certainly some quantitative studies that I've been doing on distancing, where we're mm -hmm. seeing genuine changes in social distancing. An interesting study in America that correlated social distancing changes uh, using uh, 
basically mobile telephony and distancing from those sorts of systems. And it correlated mm -hmm. oddly with uh, partisan leanings on politics. Uh, and mm -hmm. it also correlated with mask or not mask use. Very, very exciting stuff about that. Uh, so we're going to be seeing a lot more of this, the science uh, meet, meeting mm -hmm. the apologist. Um, just uh, you, you spoke about consulting. And mm -hmm. uh, maybe this is the wrong example, but you, you picked mm -hmm. up that I went into this hotel group and maybe the rooms were too masculine, or et cetera. <laughs> give people a flavor of what recommendations come out. What oh, did sure. you mean about a masculine room? And could you give us one or two recommendations you made to them? Yeah, of course, I would be happy to. So, you know, I mean, one of the things that um, hotels began to recognize in the last couple of decades was the rise of female business travelers. And in fact, you know, women business um, leaders uh, have a fair amount of capital to spend also. So, I mean, there are actual kind of uh, financial reasons. Um, we were brought together, I was brought together with a bunch of experts to what we call ideate as a consultant, ideation sessions, which your audience may know about, where we brought people who were interior designers, uh, people who were um, editors of traveler magazines to ideate and think about what were um, hotels built like and for. Um, and we found that very often people were coming in with like incredibly tiny but significant ideas. For example, people complained bitterly that the lighting and the mirror were not adequate, were built for men for like, you know, doing their shaving or whatever, but did not kind of provide the lighting for makeup, right? That sounds like a trivial thing, but people wanted to have certain kind of design of the makeup. So I'm talking about very, very small kinds of tweaks. Then there were also kinds of things about feeling like you wanted to, um, this is a little bit different, and I think hotels have sort of just, made advances. One of the things was the complaint of coming in really late at night. You know, you're from an airplane, you're really hungry. Um, what's in the refrigerator? It's Snickers, it's Diet Cokes. There's nothing, you know, healthy, right? And so, I mean, this would go for, I mean, a lot of the things were not just about women, right? It was about sort of being a kind of healthier kind of um, experience. So we suggested a kind of whole um, addition of wellness um, amenities uh, that could be done, which again would be for women and men. But I'll, I'll give you one last example is that, you know, I went to a meeting with the, uh, the, the high ranking executives and I noticed that there were several female chefs at the hotel, which is relatively unusual because, of course, men are generally when you get to the higher tiers. I said, look, here's a great opportunity. Don't keep these women behind, you know, closed doors in the kitchen. Let people know on your website that you have women at the helm, right? And that, you know, so that was a branding thing that was not insincere. It was completely authentic and they had just never thought about it. So your answer is from the very tiny kind of minute things that make a huge difference. Because as I said, when I was talking to people, I mean, hotels are, you know, you want to be able to create and present yourself and put your whatever your face may, may or may not be. Um, two very large kinds of questions about sort of the outward face, the kind of public face of the of the of the hotel. So that's what we work with. We work from from the very small to the very large. Wow, well that's great. It's refreshing. It reminds me we were doing some work in Seoul, and we were pointing out that women felt threatened there, and they they right. worked out they had foreign women met by English speaking women driving the taxis, and it made just an enormous difference to. Right. The relaxation and the attitude towards the city. So yeah, those small things. Now Hugh Purser uh, is saying here that um, I think he's making an interesting distinction. You, you spoke about strong ties and weak ties, and I, mm -hmm. I think Hugh might even be talking about feeble ties. He says arguably online events such as this one during COVID 
have increased exposure to weak ties on a scale previously unimaginable. Right. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's the hard thing about this is that, well, it hasn't, it hasn't. I mean, it, it's funny because, I mean, in the context of, of how it's configured now, it's weak ties because I can't see anybody. I mean, you can see people, right? But I don't even know the ties that I sort of am experiencing where I would, of course, be experienced if we were physically in a place, I would see the gentleman that just mentioned it. So, um, yes, I mean, in fact, sort of Zoom, Zoom creates um, a sense of the possibility of weak ties. And, and, and maybe we can think about, you know, are there um, technological ways in which we could enhance the possibility of if we're all on a Zoom or a different platform, we're not even on Zoom, I apologize. I'm so used to being on Zoom. But, you know, how can we create um, possible spontaneous kinds of interactions so that, I, you know, one might interact with the feeble or the weak weak ties? Um, and and, and it's, it's not entirely uh, clear to me how that would... Um, be made. I am writing a, a very interesting article with a dance teacher of mine where we did happy hours for all the dancers. And I would argue that because the dancers come from all kinds of all over the world and we created a happy hour once a month to talk, that created a space in which you would weak ties, people who did not know each other but only took dance classes together, talk to each other in Switzerland, in Vienna, in New York, in Dallas and actually created stronger ties that way. So I think that there are ways to do it. I, I don't know that we have come up with the most viable solutions. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I'm, it's something I'd always wanted to go back to is Tai Chi. And in the last year, I've been on a Tai Chi online course for you know, uh -huh. half or four times a week. And, and you can see some of these weak ties coming together uh, because you're doing something with other people remotely. Exactly, um, yeah. And we're actually, we're trying to theorize that too. I mean, because we're actually meeting, not we're not only dancing, but we have once a month coming together, which is, you know, that that's a very sort of created, artificially created community. How does that allow for the weak ties to interface, right? I mean, it's, essentially that's an experiment, if you will. Edwina Morton, uh, who's a past master of the World Traders and also uh, uh, editor at The Economist, uh, asked, or states, something difficult to achieve in a digital age is headspace not being contactable all the time. Does the work-home merger not increase these mental pressures where it is hard to switch off and have time to think about something other than work? I always found the commute on the London Underground hugely helpful in switching off. Are we not exactly. now in danger of impacting people's mental health by not respecting these boundaries? Has the pandemic been analyzed for this problem too? Yeah, um, and I am talking, I am really deeply concerned about that, right? That we had kind of, um, when we were commuting to work, we had boundaries, right? I mean, anthropologists look at, you know, um, how we create symbolic material and physical boundaries, right? And the commute is a, an obvious um, example of the transition, you know? Um, it's kind of a limit, what we would call a liminal space as an anthropologist. We're neither home nor at work, we're kind of in between and we're transitioning, right? Um, Victor Turner talked about liminality a lot. Yes, it's of deep concern to sort of see what happens um, when I, for example, if I just took my own self as an ethnographic subject, right? Um, I am at the dining room table working all the time and then I go to the other side of the dining room table, which is you know six feet, um, and I end up going to take my dance and my yoga classes and then I come right back, right? There's very little demarcation. Now I have actually, I mean, what I have done is created a physical boundary in my house, essentially. It's a New York City apartment, so it's a limited space, right? 
that actually sort of makes that a sacred space or a space in which the boundaries of um, work cannot come into that part of the dining room. And I would suggest that, you know, I'm always interested in, I'm not just using myself as an ethnographic subject, but I'm always interested in the ways that people invent rituals and practices to create certain kinds of boundaries. I think it's really difficult. I don't think it can be done on an individual level. It has to be done organizationally because, you know, um, of course, if I'm in a yoga class or something, I have to then turn off my phone. And of course, sometimes I haven't been able to, right? And so I, I think that the, the penetration of work into home um, is deeply troubling. Um, even the issues, which I didn't bring up um, in my own work, but issues about surveillance also, right? Sort of the ways in which the encroachment on the private, the interior self, um, what we keep away from people. Um, it's not just a 24 hour constant ding, ding, ding. It's also even the fact that, you know, you see a little bit of my house, I have a door that won't fully close. You know, you have like you have messages, right? I mean, there, we 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 speak to each other with props. Irving Goffman talked about the presentation of self in everyday life, um, and so of course so the other part is is how we're presenting ourselves and how parts of our personal selves, for both better and worse, are being on screen, right? Of course, I could put up an artificial barrier. So I think that your question uh, about the penetration and the impact is going to be huge and something that organizations, governments, policy people really need to think about. And of course, the impact of the pandemic on mental issues is vast and of deep concern. Now, Robin Davis is, is curious. I mean, I was, as you were going on about you being an ethnographic subject of yourself, I realized it, it can become difficult to not impose and just to keep the, the required distance uh, to make sure that you're, you're objective in the way that you analyze. But Rob is asking for your personal opinion. Um, although, okay. although they are weak ties, uh, do you think the pandemic pivot to global online webinars might be a good step to inclusivity? Um, you know, we're seeing people from around the world, though yes, we do need to enable us to interface a little bit more than, hi, I'm here from Jakarta or something. Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, it's been a huge change in which I think there's an exchange of ideas. Um, for example, in the book that I started, um, I started, which is on the future of work, I started when I was at the University of Copenhagen in 2017. And I did what was traditional field work. I went to facility managers offices, I went to Institute for Future Studies, I did work in the field. Um, four years later, I found myself three years later, I found myself at my dining room table unable to do field work, right? And so what happened was I contacted my Copenhagen colleagues who I've been studying with, and they told me all these people that they knew who worked in facility management, corporate real estate, um, who were all over the world that I could talk to. Now, ordinarily, I would have flown, probably. I mean, which is an expensive thing for an anthropologist to do. But I had at my kind of uh, digital steps, footsteps, fingertips, right? A whole co coterie of people to talk to and a quite a diverse set of people to talk to, right? So part of it was my own initiative and it really changed the um, contours of my own field work. But those are essentially weak ties, right? It, by um, Those were ties of ties of ties, um, people suggesting. So I think that there are ways that we need to think really inventively about what we can do in the context of webinars or conferences or events. Um, I went to, I spoke at IFMA's uh, International Facility Management Association 
um, conference last week. And at the end of the day, so that was all the kind of formal presentation. But at night, I went to a little gathering for their foundation. And we all played a bunch of games in breakout groups, which I'll tell you, I mean, it sounds so trivial. And we were talking about name that tune. Well, first of all, I saw people that I've only interviewed formally and who I had no idea if they were on the call or not when I was talking to a thousand people. But we had fun. We had the kind of like, you know, do you know the 60s or whatever, right? I mean, it was a, it was, and that's a ritual. That's a bonding thing. And that's weak ties in effect. So I'm not suggesting that we all start playing games, but it's not, it's, it's not um, a bad example of the kinds of things that we need to do. Because what anthropologists have shown is that Irving Goffman talked about interaction rituals, that we interact and we see ourselves, we perform ourselves, we get a sense of um, recognition of our identity and who we are and who we're bonding with, right? In rituals, in game playing. And we need to think about creating inventive spaces, and, and it will happen in the physical workplace as people come back. But again, I mean, it's, it's, it's really trying to think a little bit out of, out of the box at the moment. Okay. Now, you mentioned a concept I, I found quite intriguing, a mobility ambassador. What a, what a great idea it sounds like. Mm -hmm. uh, this concierge would help. Mm -hmm. uh, Hugh Purser again, there seem to be huge opportunities to learn from work experiences in very diverse sectors. What are two of the most extreme differences that you've come across? Um, in terms of diversity, I just want to understand the question. No, just work, work, just work experiences um, in, in during this pandemic. What, what are two of the most extreme you have come across? I think at least the, the, the most extreme that um, is of just, that is concerning of me is the impact on working parents um, with children at home, either young or um, who have been online, and the kind of you know we have um, workplaces that are sort of made for um, we have two different cultural schemas in our in our work worlds. The, you know, the um, devotion to work, which requires 24 hour seven and the devotion to family, which is usually on the comes to the mother who is supposed to take care of the child and is also about creating an, a, a wonderful child and ensuring that the child is taken care of. And those two cultural schemas or ideas don't really match up. Yeah. Um, now we have uh, people at home who have to take care of their children 24 hour seven and dealing with their work 24 hour seven. And what I see is um, I, I do not know anyone that I have talked to with children who is not uh, maxed in terms of anxiety, stress, trying to seek out uh, viable solutions, having trouble with children. I think that's the most extreme example. And, and I'll stop there in case there's another question. Yeah, uh, Robin Davis is uh, curious. What do you see as the role for virtual reality? You know, is this a good opportunity for it to take a step forward? I think it is, and um, that's not something that I've looked at entirely, but I certainly think that that is the wave of the future. Um, I think that the impact of the kind of flat surfacing that we are seeing and the kind of Zoom fatigue or whatever platform we're in is troublesome. And we need to think about sort of, you know, we are embodied beings, people that, you know, are used to physical touch, um, experience that moves, and sort of any kind of platform that can allow us to experientially feel things that we might not ordinarily could potentially be quite um, productive, right? Um, I think that there's lots of ways in which scientists, neuroscientists, others need to be working with anthropologists, techn technology people to really think and see like what really works um what what doesn't work um and i think that that's part of um the brave new world of, of work and and society that's ahead of us who knows what it's going to be 
a little science fiction-ish a little bit, if you will. Yeah. Well, interestingly, I'd, I'd encourage people to have a two or three minutes looking at something called Twitch. And Twitch uh -huh. is basically a, a set of Netflix uh, type experiences of gamers. Uh, and I was surprised at the variety of interactions between gaming, reality, camera shots, uh, and then the, the, these artificial worlds. So uh, lots to explore there. Uh, time for just one final question, if you don't mind. And uh, I think it's for me, really, if, if I can. You, you, you spoke about kind of, uh, well, your very first point is when work becomes home and home becomes work. Do you foresee any real changes in home furniture? You know, all of our all of our work furniture is work furniture that sits in cubicles or sits on workspace floors. Absolutely. The same for can, the third. Go, can you go back to one of my slides about home and work? Um, sure. Do you have a minute? Um, the first one, go all the way back because it's really funny. I just didn't you know, go for, forward. Yeah, uh, that. So if you okay. see the um, that one, right. So if you see that slide and um, you see the one about the window. So mm -hmm. I was looking out the window and I was talking to the Jeff who I'm creating my consulting company called Ethnographic Futures. And I said, I don't understand why this guy has on their on their um, window all these stickies. And I said, but the stickies aren't just inside the window. They're also on the outside of the window. What is I like, what is that? And I come back and I take a picture and I said, I don't know what he's doing. He said, that's a whiteboard. Oh, I said, oh, my God, you're right. And so what I think is really funny is, you know, the way in which people are inventing um, new ways of doing work at home. Um, yes, I think that we're going to have to be thinking about um, the things that we talked about before. Um, you know, how do you create boundaries um, depending upon your space? You see in New York, in the context of New York, the advertisement now of apartment buildings in which, you know, they have mobile um, uh, walls that can can change and things like that. So I, I do think that we will begin to see um, new ways of uh, some that will work and some that that will won't. But I thought that was particularly amusing. Oh, well, um, I, I can see the thanks coming in. And folks, if you want to send a message of thanks to Melissa, just uh, tap it in the chat room and it will get to her. Um, but that's always a sign that I've overrun my time. Uh, <laughs> I, I found this really fascinating. The whole the whole area of anthropology and we could have gone on to chat about uh, you and Jillian Tett's thinking on, on where anthropology would matter. Uh, time. I, I could go on for some some time indeed. But unfortunately, um, I'm just going to close with, if I may, uh, three quick rounds of thanks. Uh, firstly, to our sponsors. If the future of work doesn't interest you, well, you probably wouldn't be sponsoring us anyway. And so we're delighted. We hope that you find it helpful. Uh, secondly, if I could, I'd just like to thank you, the audience, uh, as ever. Uh, very forthcoming and engaged. We really do appreciate it. That's what these are about, conversations, not just presentations. Uh, next week, uh, we, we do have a bank holiday here in the United Kingdom on Monday, but we'll kick off on Wednesday with a, a good look at capitalism and a couple more climate change events, which I think uh, you'll find fascinating. We're going to have probably a little bit more climate change than usual in the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow in November. But finally, of course, Melissa, I have to thank you. You rose to the occasion. We met uh, advising a client on effectively building and construction. I was seriously impressed with your thinking. I'm even more impressed having seen it today and having gotten about two thirds way uh, through Wall Street Women. Uh, you're a very good writer as well. Um, now we have a ritual here uh, at FS Club uh, because uh -huh. we're unable to open the gates of applause. So I have brought uh -huh. a ritualistic- Oh my uh, gosh, that's adorable. Armic Clapper. And I will now give Have you a applause from Thank the audience. Thank you so much. And thank you.
so much. <laughs> there and you go. You know, I love your new really Well, I just want to say what an honor it's been and a pleasure to um, have met you. Yes, again, an advising clients, and I really appreciated the um, depth and complexity and of the questions. And I hope to hear from people who didn't get an opportunity to talk. Or, um, you know, I'm happy, uh, we have a couple of the books and articles. I'm happy to, uh, to send things to people if they email me. I can send you a copy of the article. It might be easier um, to get that way. And I'm happy to have conversations afterwards. But again, it's been just a delight. And thank you for giving such a wonderful moderator. And as we said in our warm up, or the green room, so to speak, that uh, one of the sad things about this is we don't have the ending ritual of thanking people. It just, the curtain comes down. but. I'll it's, say goodbye a, to everyone. Thanks again, Melissa. Thank and you we'll so much. You. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.